in your name we pray amen All right, this morning we are reading the second half of Obadiah, starting at verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau and people from the foot, foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of, Isra of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. computer decided to helpfully close the document, all good. Well this morning is the second and the last in our two week series on Obadiah. And if you were here last week, hopefully you didn't spend all week arguing about who actually is the golden child in your family. Hopefully you spent some of the week reflecting on the two beat rhythm of biblical history, judgment and salvation. And possibly you reflected on how clearly we saw this rhythm in the life of the tussling twin nations of Edom and Judah from Esau and Jacob. And through Genesis 12, we were reminded that these twins, the grandkids of Abraham, who God had made a great promise to. The great promise was that a great nation, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We saw how Obadiah demonstrated the outworkings of this blessing and cursing in the judgment of Edom and the salvation of Judah. This was a great reversal. Edom was high was brought low. 
And G- Judah, who was afflicted and suffered, would be saved. Now, as you've reflected on this, you, you may have been struck by a question that we didn't address last week. And we will touch on this briefly this morning. You see, if Judah was God's chosen people, answer me this, Jeff, why were they experiencing all of this disaster that Edom was watching, rejoicing in, and joining in on in the first place? Why wasn't God protecting them? Why did God allow this to happen to his people? This can quickly cause us to ask this question to other events throughout history or events in our own lives. Now, the answer to this can be quite complex and quite simple at the same time. And it has multifacets depending on the context we're talking about. It's also not the main point of Obadiah, so we're only going to briefly address it. But I know for me, it was a question that came in my mind and it may be one that came in yours. Firstly, God was allowing this because God was judging his own people. Remember, God's own understanding is higher than ours and his ways and his works are higher. But also remember that God is always just. Think about it like this. You have just made a delicious batch of cookies. They're hot out of the oven. They fill the entire house with a delicious smell. All of a sudden, you're surrounded by those who would like to partake. You say to them, you need to let them cool. They're not ready yet. Now, some of those who are standing by quickly touch one. Oh, oh, that's hot. Yes, as I said, you need to let them cool. They're not ready yet. You need to leave them and you need to trust me. And someone grabs one and shoves it in their mouth and starts screaming about how their mouth is burning and it's on fire. You could have let me know that I was going to burn my mouth. He replied, I told you that they were hot. You did not listen. Now you have the consequence of your choices. A burnt mouth. I gave you over to your choices. You see, we see examples of this throughout biblical history. Jeremiah 34 to 39 makes it clear that God is faithful to judge his people when they persistently reject his word. God gives people over to their consequences, to the consequences of their choices, not to condemn them, but to mature them, to convict them, to bring about repentance. The judgment of Judah and the exile to Babylon is an example of this. It's not eternal condemnation for them, but temporary judgment. The Bible clearly teaches that justice demands atonement. Scripture shows us that this is only through the shedding of blood, whether the blood of a substitute, a sacrifice, or of the sinner themselves. God accepts, if God accepts willful disobedience without consequence, how could he be a holy God? He couldn't. And he doesn't. The amazing reality is that we ultimately see God's love and God's judgment wrapped together perfectly at the cross. 
Jesus Christ, the beloved Son of God, holy and pure, without blemish, the perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of the world, absorbs the just wrath of God through the shedding of blood as the substitute for sinners. You see, the cross is proof that what seemed like dead-end judgment in that moment was and is actually the loving purposes of God being made magnified forever. So yes, God does judge his people. But when his people... Sorry, God does judge his people. But through Jesus, this judgment has been paid for in full. Now that being said, we're going to dive in to the second half of this little book. The concept that we unpacked here in the kids' talk about the perspectives of prophecy is helpful when we're studying a book like this. It assists us to remember that things can appear to be the same or or overlapping or, or not quite clear. That sometimes they are in effect separate events that are working together for God's one big judgment plan. Or they are events that point towards God's ultimate fulfillment of his plan. It really depends on the angle and the perspective of history you're looking at and looking from. We come to Abadiah here both looking back at the day of the prophet as well as looking forward to the end of all things. Look with me at verse 15. Note that this is a hinge point in this book. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. We move here from the specific situations outlined in the first 14 verses between Edom and Judah to a bigger picture of all nations. The author here continues to draw on places and people from the now of the prophet's day to all nations. It points us towards the not yet, the expanded judgment and the expanded salvation, not just for Edom and Judah, but for all. We need to keep in mind this interplay and this overlay as the author will flip between these, using examples of the specific now to help us understand and see more of the not yet of the future. In scripture, the phrase, the day of the Lord, or on that day, refers more to an event in time rather than an extent of time. In prophecy, the day of the Lord encompasses both the historical now as well as the eschatological, the not yet, the study of and the looking forward to things that come. We shouldn't be afraid of big words. It helps us to think of the historical day of the Lord as signposts pointing to that ultimate day when God will judge and restore the whole world. These periodic events or days of the Lord throughout history assist us to anticipate it and to understand it as the final day of the Lord. The use here in verse 15 is not focused on the specific judgment and salvation for Edom and Judah, but the expanded judgment and salvation for all nations, which is the focus of this second half of the book. Let's continue on. Read with me. As you have done, it will be done to you. 
your deeds will return on your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and drink as if they have never been. The prophet here is speaking once again of this great reversal. Just as it's been done to you, just as you've done it, it will be done to you. Just as Edom's deeds came back on them, mankind's deeds will come back on them. The word drink in verse 16 is really important here. Throughout scripture we see drink used in two quite clear ways. Drink as in to celebrate, party or revel. And secondly, drink as in to drink judgment. It appears that both are actually at play here in Obadiah. Just as you drank on my holy hill, just as you celebrated and, and you reveled, just as you reveled in that perceived security of your, your high position, that, that power, that political influence that you had, had, so all the nations will drink. So it will be flipped, it will be reversed. And they will drink. But not just that they will drink in reveling, but they will drink judgment. Just as you are drinking judgment on yourself, so too the cup of judgment will come on all. And we see that it will drink and drink and drink. It is continual. It is ongoing. And as a result, what is it that we see? They will be as though they have never been. Those of Edom and those of all nations who don't follow his lead, they will cease to exist as nations. Even in this, we can see both of the rhythms of judgment and salvation. We see the foreshadowing, the continuation of God's pattern of a remnant, a believing few that will be saved. And with history... We can see that including out of Eden, all nations, there is a remnant that is saved. Verse 17 then moves into deliverance that is offered. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. In verse 17, Mount Zion is really, really important. Now, Zion is a physical place on earth throughout biblical history. It shows God's redemptive work. Even before it was given the name Mount Zion, it served this purpose. There, Abraham, in faith, found his only son and prepared him for sacrifice, trusting God. And God provided a sacrifice, a substitute. On that mount, Jacob had a dream that allowed him to climb to heaven. On that mount, David sacrificed oxen to atone for his sin. And there, on that mount, Solomon built the magnificent temple of the Lord. A place for sacrifice and for the Lord's holy dwelling. Zion was the place on earth where God and his people dwelt. Israel gathered for worship in Zion because the Lord loved it and made it his dwelling place. But we also need to understand that the physical Mount Zion is a foreshadowing, a symbol of the heavenly Zion, the kingdom of heaven. 
In the now of the Old Testament, there had been deliverance on Zion. And in the not yet, there will be dwelling with God in the heavenly Zion. Hebrews 12 speaks clearly of this. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Deliverance from judgment and dwelling with God in heavenly Zion is seen here in these verses in Obadiah. In the second half of this verse, we, we see Jacob will possess his inheritance. This, this casts us back to the blessing to Abraham, which was passed down to Jacob. The blessing of land, children, and the promise of blessing the whole world through his family line. This inheritance promised through Jacob to Judah in the now speaks of the internal inheritance in the not yet for God's chosen people from all nations. All people blessed through Jesus. Verse 18. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph will be a flame. Esau will be the stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. Now, I don't know if you're anything like me, but you probably like playing with matches. Fire can be fun, but fire can also be dangerous. We see Esau here is stubble. Something that is dry and catches light easily and burns up completely. Jacob and Joseph are fire and flame. In this passage here, the fire and flame of Jacob and Joseph is representative of the divided kingdoms of the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. They once again will come together. The twelve tribes will collectively subdue and consume the house of Esau. Fire and flame versus stubble. Dry stubble here illustrates the swiftness, the completeness of the judgment that is coming for Esau. While foreshadowing, once again, judgment for all in the not yet who do not believe. Now fire is used in scripture to show the consuming, destructing and refinement power. Consuming fire in the destruction of a sacrifice. Purifying fire, working by removing or destroying imperfections. Here we see the consuming, destructive fire, judgment. Just as Edom had attempted to cut down and destroy Judah's fugitives and survivors, so now the devouring flames of Jacob and Joseph will not leave any survivors. History shows us that the might and the power of the Edomites was completely destroyed. But as we stand with the prophet and look forward to the not yet, to the expanded judgment and salvation, we can see the fire of judgment will come on all who do not believe. None who do not believe will survive. In Malachi 4, we read, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. The day is coming when I will set them ablaze, says the Lord 
hosts. Those who oppose God will be obliterated as if they never existed. Now this is a reminder for us of the danger of ignoring the reality of God's judgment and the reality of consequences of sin. From verse 15 to 18, we have seen the now and the not yet of the expanded judgment and expanded salvation. We need to be reminded and not ignore the reality of God's judgment, but in the light of the cross, we have no condemnation. Verse 19. These last few verses now shift to the restoration of the kingdom. The people from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and the people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Cana will possess the land of the Zerath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Shephard will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up onto Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Here we see a listing of various people and various places. The Lord empowers his remnant to repossess and to restore the land, the inheritance. It comes again. Fulfilling this promise. This promise. The places listed above in these verses actually cover all of the directions of the compass. Negev and the mountains of Esau were to the south. Ephraim and Samaria were to the north. And to the west, Philistines. And to the east, Gilead. In all directions, all will be restored. Those in exile will return and will possess the land. There is restoration. Now remember Mount Esau? Remember how it was held up as a, as a high place of power and political influence? We saw this early in Obadiah in the first few verses. We saw the pride that the Edomites had and how God made them low. Now Mount Zion is the true high place of deliverance. While there is restoration of the kingdom here in the now of history for Israel, this is also a sign, pointing, a foreshadowing to the not yet of the restoration of the eternal kingdom. As we come to the close of, of this book, we see that the prophet concludes with a simple statement, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Throughout history, Israel was repeatedly seduced into worshipping other gods. And as we expand this, we can see that we too can be seduced into worshipping other things. Putting other things before God. Sin can so easily entrap us. We can fall into the traps of Esau and desire the things for now, desire the power, desire the political influence, fall into pride and be trapped 
And in this, we can reject the things that point us to the not yet. We can be caught up in looking at the temporal, earthly things of the now and not lift our eyes to the eternal, forever things. Friends, God's judgment is real and serious business. He judges individuals, nations, rulers, families, cities, even his own people. The eternal punishment of the ungodly is sure. It will be everlasting and the unsaved will be separate forever from God's presence. All rebellion will be judged and punishments will be served out accordingly. Now we often like to focus on the grace and the love of God and that's good. But so often we don't reflect on the wrath and the judgment of God. But we must. We must understand that the destructive and powerful wrath of God in his judgment is so because God is holy. And that we may from this come to a greater understanding of our own depravity and the judgment that we actually deserve which was taken on our behalf by Jesus on the cross. You see, salvation is only possible through judgment. The judgment that Jesus took. We must remind ourselves that the holiness of God, of the holiness of God, and of his hatred for sin. We too need to rediscover our hatred of sin. Too often we can be drawn into the perceived temporary pleasures of sin. Friends, repentance is active, not passive. We need to turn and walk away from our sinful desires and walk towards Christ. Unfortunately, too often the phrase, Jesus took the judgment we deserve, rolls off our tongue as easily and as lightly as, what are we having for dinner tonight? We need to, I need to, Rediscover the depth of judgment that Jesus bore as a substitute for us, for me. And this returns us right back to that promise of God to Abraham that all people will be blessed through his line. Through the line of Judah came Jesus, the saviour of the world. And when we see God's wrath and judgment in this way, oh, the gratitude that we have been saved. The humble thankfulness at which we can sing our praises, our Redeemer. We are blessed, a blessed group. Never forget his loving kindness to those whom he has chosen for himself. As Romans 8 so clearly reminds us, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was made powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements 
the judgment of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but those who live according to the spirit as we look back on this short book of Obadiah we see the promises that God has kept as we see the judgment that was given out to Edom and the salvation that was given to Judah may we actively turn from any of the ways of Eden that we find ourselves being drawn to. From our sinful desires. May we repentantly live in the now for God's kingdom and for his glory while looking forward to the not yet of when Jesus will come again. The ultimate restoration of the kingdom. He will come and he will judge all mankind. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he indeed is Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the reminders found here in this little book of Obadiah. The reminders of the two-beat rhythm of history of judgment and salvation. Father, help us this morning to be ever mindful of how holy you are, God. And how, without Christ, how wretched we are. How sinful we are. And how we deserve judgment and your wrath. But oh, how grateful we are for your son. For his death and resurrection. For him taking that judgment. For bearing it. The consequences of our sin. The sin of all mankind. And rising victorious. May we live in.